Uh, reading today is from Exodus 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verses 19 through 31. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front, of, in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen and the, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the, through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, the Israel, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for not telling stories. Hey, uh, Matt, if you could just turn me down just a little bit. I haven't preached in a month, so I might be, I'm just kidding. That's not going to be louder than I usually am. Hey, this morning I want you to think back to the house that you grew up in. Okay, so I want to take some of you back a little bit of a ways. And so everybody got the house you grew up in? Everybody tracking? Okay, good. And then I just wonder if there was a place as a younger person, as a child, that you did not want to go in that house that you grew up in. If there was like a place that was maybe a little bit scary, you got that part, right? So for me, it was like our laundry area, right? So one of my big questions in life, why do they make laundry places so creepy? I just feel like many houses, many places, that is like not a place you would like, like to have a meal, right? You don't even want to go. And so I remember being a little kid and having some kind of like laundry hamper, a little bit different than this, and my parents saying to me, hey, David, which you're not allowed to call me, thanks for asking, go down into the laundry and switch it over or go and grab this and bring it up, would you please? And I was terrified. The reason is because monsters live down there in the laundry. If you didn't know, if you're wondering where monsters live, that's where they live, by the laundry. This is why people have a love-hate relationship with laundry. I think it's because of the monsters. That's just my own personal hunch. It's my opinion I don't actually know that's true, all right? So that's what I would do. And the part that I really didn't like, let me tell you, is I would get the laundry and I would start coming up the stairs. The stairs were the scary part going down, right? Because they weren't like finished carpeted stairs. Anybody have stairs like this in your life before? Like you can hide stuff underneath 
It's a great place for hide and seek, but it makes your imagination go nutso, right? So when I would always be walking up those stairs, what would I sense? I would sense that there was something behind me, right? Something chasing me, right? And you had that feeling like in your body, you're like, ah, and you look around, but then it's just nothing, right? And I just think in life, it's possible for us to have not moved beyond that moment and that fear, but for us to live with this sense that there's something after us. I know, oh, wow, how encouraging of a moment to step back into after a month off. Let's go there. But that's what the truth of the scripture is. That's what the truth of our human experience is. I think it's possible in the room today for us to be chased by people's words. Like there are words that have been spoken over our lives and they just kind of continue to chase us. They continue to define us. There's been maybe some adults in our life, a teacher, a coach, a parent, an acquaintance, who just made a comment, not trying to be evil, not trying to be horrible, just making a comment. And that comment has stayed with us, and so we tend to wake up in the morning with that comment with that thing that was spoken over our lives. We're either too much this or we're not enough that. If if this would just be true of us, then that would impact our belonging and our value and our identity. So I think we can be chased by words. I also think that we can be chased by wounds. That there are wounds visible and invisible that we wake up with and that we carry. And that attempt to define our lives, like who we are, our worth, and identity and personhood. You know, and you can, I've got this like wound on my elbow from playing cops and robbers with my brothers growing up. I had a brother who was bigger, faster, and had a cooler bike than me, so he always won. But I also have wounds that you won't see, invisible ones. And I wake up with those, I go to bed with those. And I have to deal with those wounds. And you can't schedule when they are going to appear. Like you schedule some kind of repairman at your house. It's like, yeah, I'll be there between 2021 and 2025, right? They just show up unannounced most of the time when we're not ready for them. So I believe we can be chased by words. I think we can be chased by wounds. I also believe today that we can be chased by choices. And sometimes it's choices that we have made. They're the thing in the basement that we feel like is just following us around. And we can be chased by the choices of others. Like it wasn't even something that you decided. It's something that someone else decided that impacts your life and your story and your personhood and your identity and your place and your belonging in the world. Oh yeah, and it turns out you can also be chased by Egypt. And that's Israel's story. They have been in bondage and slavery in this nation. It's not the place that God told them they were going to live. They were promised abundance Because they belonged to God. He was going to be faithful to them. And they were called to be faithful to him. 
but they had to walk away from all of that and they found themselves generation after generation after generation in slavery building bricks instead of advancing his kingdom. But then there's a moment where there's a breakthrough and so God sends this man Moses after his mom places him in this basket and into this huge body of water that God preserves his life and raises him up, not outside of this palace, but within the palace, so that he could impact outside of the palace. It's beautiful. We don't have time for all of it today. I just have time for that little sentence. And he raises Moses up so that he might help redeem, restore, repair, and heal every word spoken against the nation of Israel, every wound that Israel has, and every choice they have made and choice that has been made by someone that has impacted where their feet stand. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to use you to call these people out of where they are so that they might stand in a different kind of a place. They might stand in freedom and healing and truth and blessing. The only problem is it's hard to get a couple of people in a minivan and take them on down the street it's a lot harder to get a whole nation of people to go somewhere. I know we have no current way to understand what that would be like, but just imagine in your mind how we could get a nation moving somewhere. Right? And so this is what Moses has been called to do. And so there's these signs and these wonders that show up. And so finally Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, says, get out of here. I don't even want you around anymore. And so they take off. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. Because <laughs> he's like, wait, who's going to build all my stuff? I'm going to have to do it. And so he gets all of his army people together. And he's like, no, go back after them. I know that I said that they could leave. But that was a bad choice. I hadn't had breakfast yet. And so I made a bad decision. So go get them. And then this is what find, where we find ourselves. So verse 19 and 20 that Chris read for us in Exodus chapter 14. We find these words, The angel of God, who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. So the angel of God moves, and he moves somewhere from in front of them, leading, guiding, providing that light, that vision to behind Israel. Do you notice that when we're reading this? And how many people have you talked with in your life? How many moments have you sat in as an individual person and you've said, like, where in the world did God go? Like, he was right here in front of me. And then he just vanished. Then he just disappeared. Then he just went somewhere. This is a moment in the history of Israel, in our story, the story we've been brought into to let us know, hey, sometimes we can't see him because he's fighting behind us. 
Sometimes he's at work behind us, and we're not going to be able to see it. Sometimes he's what? He's standing in between us and the thing that is pursuing us, the thing that is chasing us. So church, you're not always going to see him, but don't think because you can't see him doesn't mean that he's stopped fighting. Because he's all about taking down every word that has been spoken about you that gets in the way of you understanding your life and your hope and your identity in Jesus. He's real serious about that. And he's real serious about wounds that you carry. Over and over and over in the scriptures, what's Jesus doing maybe more than anything is he's placing his hand on hurt places in people both visible and I would argue invisible. Because I would argue in the scriptures when we see someone who's blind, there's something else too. When we see someone with a shriveled hand, there's something else too. When we see someone who can't walk, there's something else too. When Jesus interrupts a funeral, there's something else too. These are signposts that are supposed to get us to wake up and to pay attention. There's something more that God wants to do. And then in verse 21 and 22, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Can you just imagine that moment for a second, like Israel being like, uh, what's he doing? We just like ran away from Pharaoh, and this crazy guy has like his arm stretched out like over the sea, what's going on? And then all that night, if you're a circler in your Bibles, I have that circled. All that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and he turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. So Moses stretches out his hand. And God drives this water back all night long. Notice he doesn't do it in a minute. Notice he doesn't do it in a second. Notice he doesn't do it in an hour. But all night long, the Lord drove the sea back with an east wind revealing dry ground. So just because God has not snapped his fingers and changed our pain, and changed our wound, changed our season, changed our doubt, changed the moment that we are standing in, does not mean for a second that God is not good, that he's not faithful, that he's not near, that he's not kind, that he's not active. He is enduringly God. And there's faithfulness attached to that. There's grace attached to that. There's victory attached to that. So this is an act of creation that what happens? Dry land appears where? In the middle of the chaos. Does that make anybody else in the house think of Genesis chapter 1? Remember the tohu wabohu, like this spirit that's hovering the formlessness and the emptiness of the world. That's how it's described. It's formless and it's empty, tohu wabohu. And God speaks into the tohu and wabohu, turns out the formlessness, and the emptiness, and he creates life, and he creates order. The ancients would call it shalom, like this peace, inward peace, an external peace, peace above 
and peace within. That's what God does. And here's another act of creation. So God, God's actually not that interested in stopping the chaos. Can I tell you that? I know that's not fun to hear and that's hard. I wish it was different too. But God's real interested in impacting the chaos, of speaking into it. He's got some things to add. And he doesn't need to remove it. He doesn't need to stop it to change it. And I will tell you my experience of walking with Jesus It's not that God removes all the chaos and then he does something. My experience of walking with Jesus is that in the tohu wabohu, in the formlessness, in the emptiness, he brings dry ground. But it's in the chaos. And many times I have waited for the chaos just to like go on vacation. I've been in that moment before in life. And you just wanted it to go somewhere. I don't care where it goes, but not here. Not in this house. I don't want this anymore. But it's in those moments. Israel's experiences, here's dry ground. So there's water on the right and water on the left. And Israel walks through on dry ground. And so I just wonder today like about a dry ground moment in your story in your life. Like in the middle of the chaos, when you're surrounded by the darkness, by the fear, by the uncertainty, by the pain, there's water over here and there's water over here. But then there's some dry ground. Uh, I think there's lots of ways that God brings dry ground into our stories. I would say that maybe the most common way that God does this is through people. Like can you think of of a person in your story that was a dry ground kind of person for you. I shared a little bit today when I was a teenager, Chris was a dry ground person for me. He was a, a gift in a very chaotic season of my life and my story. And it was really good news that there was a church that had space for a really hurting teenager, somebody that had a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of fear. And there was a, a welcome of hospitality present in that place. And that was dry ground for me. Because I knew chaos. I knew change. I knew darkness. I knew despair. I knew tohu wabohu would be one way to say it. But what I experienced in that season was dry ground. And what was amazing about that season of my life was that it wasn't the people who were like, Come experience the dry ground we are. But I had in that season of life people who were saying, no, like the dry ground you will experience in your life has a name, and his name's Jesus. And you can stand on him when you cannot stand on anything. So have you, can you think of a person who has been dry ground for you? A place for you to stand, not someone who calls attention to themselves but helps do what we hear about in John 1, when he points to Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't say, behold how beautifully I am living out the way of Jesus in this space, in this time. No, he's not pointing to himself, but he's pointing to the one who saves. And then verse 23 The Egyptians pursued them. 
And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Oh, dang it, right? During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud of the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. Incredible wisdom. We went into the water. Shocker of all shockers, our wheels came off. Let's leave the Israelites alone. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. That's the conclusion that they come to. Like, let's get away from these people. Let's stop chasing them. Let's stop pursuing because there's a bigger story here than the kingdom that we want to build through the slavery of Israel. Like, there's more going on here than using them to build bricks day after day, moment after moment, generation after generation. And then verse 26, the Lord speaks. He says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, and none of them survived. So the Lord tells Moses to stretch his hand over the great sea. And at daybreak, the dry land is covered by millions of gallons of of water. And there is this chilling, I think, warning in the text that Egypt drowns in the waters of their own making. And here's what I think is easy in life is to point towards somebody else. Like you made me drown. <laughs> Your words made me drown. Your choices made me drown. The way that you treated me made me drown. You just need to stop so I will not drown. But here we have an example, a moment, where Egypt drowns in the waters of their own making. Because they didn't want to heed any of the the warnings. Let my people go. I'm not sure how you get more clear than that. It's like when your older sibling is grabbing hold of you. Let me go. I don't know how you get more clear in that kind of moment. And Egypt's too proud for it. They want to build their own kingdom too much to obey that. And so they drown in the waters of our own making. Of their own making. And I just think it's helpful for us in this moment to consider the times and the seasons and the moments in our own lives when that's been true. When we've been drowning not because of what someone else did or what someone else spoke, but we're drowning in the waters of our own making. I don't know if you have ever considered a lot of the churches we talk about in the scripture like don't exist anymore. Like there is no like church of Corinth or Laodicea or Colossae or Philippi and like those 
churches. You can go visit them. All they have are stones, though. Like, there's no church secretary there anymore. There's no youth ministry. There's no coffee table. They don't have a website. It's just stones. And what we know about Rome is that the reason Rome, this amazing superpower, what took Rome down was not some foreign army. Goliath didn't, like, come in and conquer everybody. There was no big storm that wiped them out. What wiped them out was their water that they relied on. There were these pipes that carried the water to them, and what happened with that water was that it got poisoned. So the thing that was filling them, the thing that was giving life to them, actually is the thing that destroyed them. And I wonder, as I look at our world, I wonder if at times we find ourselves in that kind of a place. And this is not a sermon against social media because I've not been on social media in a month. But I do wonder at times of the places that we have put ourselves that we think will fill us actually are destroying us. So what if when we feel as though we're drowning, is it possible that we're drowning in the waters of our own making? Verse 31. And when Israel saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. What an incredible day for Moses, right? He called, God calls him to lead his people out of Egypt into a land of promise. And he's doing that. And oh no, we came up to a place of water. How are we going to get through? And so raise your, you know, stretch out your hand. The water's parted. And he's like, see, I told you so. Let's all go together. Right? He was very confident. They go through. There's water on the right. There's water on the left. And they get all the way through all of the nation of Israel. Not a family, not a couple, a nation. They walk through by the grace and power of God. And the thing that is chasing them is destroyed in a moment. They didn't have to wait long for it. God made it happen. And then in that moment, Israel turns and they place their hope, their faith, their trust in God who can make that happen and in Moses. Like this incredible leader. Moses hadn't always had those kind of days. If you have read about his story in the book of Exodus, these were people who complained to Moses a lot. Like, what'd you do? Bring us out here to kill us? And in that way, Moses feels like a parent at times. Like, what in the world are you trying to do to us? We had it better in Egypt. We should just go back there. At least we could have meals and had a place to stay. Would you bring us out here? So Moses had a lot of really bad days, but this is a day for Instagram for Moses, let me tell you what. This is an incredible day. Because they placed their faith in God and in the messenger of God. God. 
And at the end, at the end of this story, I'm going to invite the band up as we close today. At the end of this, this is not like a, a leadership sermon. This is not me like telling you well, to trust me because they trusted Moses. That's a bad application of what this is. At the end of this story, Jesus is the dry ground that his people can victoriously stand upon. Like there's not dry ground anywhere else. That when we're in the middle of the chaos and there's water here and there's water there, Jesus is the dry ground that we stand on. He's the dry ground that saves. He's the dry ground that gives hope. He's the dry ground that gives power. And we can search long and high and deep and wide for dry ground. Because when you're in the middle of it, when there's water all around, it's good news that there's a place of refuge, a place to stand. A place where you're not going to be covered in the waters of destruction, but in, on the dry ground of his grace. And if we fast forward from this moment, oh, I don't know, we don't really know exactly, so let's just say thousands of years. There's another moment, and there's another person in Israel, and he's being chased by a superpower. His name is Jesus, and he's being chased by Rome. And they chase him to a place that we know as Golgotha, where things go to die. The place of a skull, they called it. And some people think we call it that because it looks like a skull. We call it that because it was a death chamber where people were killed. And Jesus is chased to a cross along with two other people whom Rome is also chasing. And he's put to death. And he cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I, I thought you're supposed to be in front of me. Where's the pillar of cloud? Where's the angel of God? It happens that the angel of God in the pillar of cloud has moved, hasn't it? Not in front of Jesus where he can see, but behind him where he can be saved from it. And so he is killed and he is put in the ground, not for an hour, not for a day, not for two days, but for three days. And then on Easter, he is raised to life. And the waters that were parted for Jesus cover the superpower of Rome. So when we talk about Jesus as dry ground, we talk about the living God as a place to stand, we're talking about it covering the superpowers that chase us, the words that chase us, the wounds that chase us, the choices that chase us. He is our dry ground. And I can tell you one thing. If there's something that this church is going to stand on as long as I'm here, it's the dry ground that we find in the name of Jesus. Because it's the only hope that I have. It's the only thing that I have found 
and 36 years of life that I can stand on and that I can count on that when my feet hit the floor in the morning, when my head hits the pillow at night, I can stand on him and so can you. It's the way that we will flourish as people because we're going to find ourselves being chased by all kinds of things. The monsters just happen to be bigger than we thought they were when we were seven. We continue to be chased by things. But the beauty of the gospel is, yes, we are being chased by superpowers, but we are being pursued by the living God. And it is a different deal, isn't it, to be chased and to be pursued. And the God of this Bible, he's not a chasing God, he's a pursuing God. And I'm so glad 